On Full Service Radio, 830 WCRM. To join the conversation, call 508-871-7000. Now, here's your host, Mark Altman. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to I Communicate, the Mindset Go Radio Show. Thrilled to be here with you on a Thursday morning. And, hey, Ted. Ted, focus. I need your attention. Are you there? He's distracted. Okay, we're going to... Ted is always multitasking. So, you know, I got to let him do his thing. So I'm going to I'm going to call out to Ted in a few minutes. But in the meantime, we are back. We're here for part two of our three part series on learning, retention and motivation. And I'm really excited today because we have a special guest. And the guest is Corinne Ferry. Corinne is a fourth grade teacher in the North Smithfield, Rhode Island School District. And she has a bachelor's degree in psychology, has a master's degree in elementary education. She's been teaching for 20 years and has been named Teacher of the Year. I mean, we have the Teacher of the Year for the North Smithfield Raleigh. How often do you get the Teacher of the Year in studio? So, Corinne, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. I'm really happy to be here. Too bad I wasn't part of the first segment. I know, I know. But I made the second cut, so that makes me pretty excited. This is unbelievable. She's been on the show 10 seconds, and she's already given me a hard time. I can't believe this. So, no, all kidding aside, um, to me, I couldn't think of a more timely guest to have. Um, I don't know what issue for parents is on your mind more than going back to school, your kids going back to school. All parents are talking about is what's your district doing and what's your district doing and why did they choose this and how do you feel about that? And uh, and I thought Corinne would be a great guest to give some perspective in how it relates to the adjustments that teachers are making, the ad- adjustments that parents are making, and of course, the most important, the adjustment that the students are actually having to make. And so that's why she's here. So we're, our show is about learning, retention, and motivation. And Corinne, I want to start out by asking you, um, you know, the question that we're all asking as parents, which is most school districts, correct me if I'm wrong, are have laid out three options, well, based on what the states or the state level has presented. And the three options, just to be succinct about it, are either it's full-time virtual, it's some kind of hybrid combination thereof, or it's full-time in person. Correct. And from 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 what I understand, very few are choosing the third. So it's, it's primarily the first or second, yes. correct? Yes, yes. So I would love to know from you, what do you think is the best approach and why? Okay, that's a great question. First of all, thanks so much for having me. On a serious note, I'm quite honored to be here, and to meet Ted was quite exciting this morning. I totally so, get that. Everybody so says it. that, Corinne. <laughs> So I appreciate it. So that that's a, a loaded question, and I think that there's not really at this point a correct answer. I don't have a crystal ball to see what the next few weeks or months are going to be like. But um, in North Smithfield, Rhode Island, we are um, right now going for a hybrid method. So we'll have a day of fully distant learning, and we'll have half of our class present on two days and the other half of the class present on the other two days. However, this could change when our governor comes out on the 31st and gives us more direction. So school departments have been struggling with you know, creating three very different plans and for me personally, it's hard to figure out which is the best one. So let, wait, let me ask you this, Corinne. So sure. I, I want to make sure I understand and even our audience understands. When you say, when you describe the hybrid plan, yes. does that mean that the two days half the students aren't in the classroom, you're still working with them online in like a 
a combo learning structure, or are they just getting assignments in those two days? The, our district, and I can't speak for other districts, but our district will have them present virtually in the classroom along with the other half. So of the, the whole class is still yes. there, but half is present, yes, half is urgent. Absolutely. Okay, well, now are there, mm -hmm. but there are d districts even doing that differently, correct? They are, yes. Yeah. Everybody's doing something different. And I okay. think that that's pretty challenging for families, and everybody's talking to one another, and everyone's not on the same page. So that's challenging. So, Corinne, you know, I'm going to, you know, the way I think about this as a parent, and I don't know if I'm in the minority or majority when I mm -hmm. ask this, but I know sometimes, some, in some cases in different districts, parents are having their students opt out of going in person. Right. So my question to you is, how do you feel about that? And if, if you, as a fourth grade teacher, if you have a child that missed three months of the curriculum for the year, are you, as a teacher, and I know you're also a parent, but are you sitting there going, oh, my God, that would be devastating? Or are you saying, eh, you know, three months, you could still get by? Like, what's, what's the thought process around that? So that's another great question. I am a mom to See, an Ted, I ask a lot of great questions. <laughs> I just, just throwing that out there. Okay, go ahead. So just speaking as, as a mom right now and taking the teacher hat off, um, you know, my son was home and he's a very active boy and obviously most kids really need that social aspect. And I really was wanting him to go back. And I live in Northbridge and we are fully distant. And so that... That definitely made me a little concerned as a parent. I did want him to be back in the classroom at least half the time. Um, however, I understand and I respect the decisions. You know, there are a lot of people that are uncomfortable with where we are and with COVID, and, and I get that. Um, so I, from a parent perspective, I wanted to try it out. I wanted to see what would this be like for him and how would the school department manage it and are they fully prepared for distant learning to be effective so so what what would be you know i know as a parent i i think we all make assumptions there's a lot of politics involved you mm -hmm. see on social media parents going at each other well i think it should be done this way and i think it should be done that way you know, I know you're closely involved with the administration. You're a go-to person in the district. So let me ask you this. What are some factors that go into this that parents may not think about beyond the obvious? Right. So, again, I can only comment on our district, and I'm very blessed to be where I am. Um, we have a very transparent uh, group of administrators that keeps us in the loop. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be a team leader. It's something that doesn't exist in all districts. So basically what I do, not to get off topic, but I just want to give a little background. Sure. Um, I'm in charge of the fourth grade team. There's five teachers on my team and I meet with the administrators and I bring forth questions and concerns for our team members, but I also bring information from the administrators to the team. And that's been really effective for our district. Everybody feels appreciated, everybody feels valued, and they feel like their voice is heard. And emails don't get lost in the shuffle because you have a point person that's taking care of that for you. That's kind of like a liaison between the teachers and the administrators, but also is speaking on behalf of being a teacher. Um, so to get back to your question, I feel like the leadership is so key in making teachers feel comfortable and confident and prepared for this because this is a huge change for us. 
Um, and our district has spent a lot of time previously on technology and making sure that we were prepared. Um, we had contemplated doing remote snow days. So we had come up with a plan. Um, it didn't pass, but we had been fully prepared for distant learning, not realizing that this was going to happen. Um, not all districts are, were ready for it. And go ahead. So, so you know, uh, from my perspective, um, I'm less concerned with which option is selected because I have very little confidence that it's going to last. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've seen in sports, we've seen in Major League Baseball, you know, the NBA and NHL have been in a bubble, so it's primarily worked. There have been no diagnosis. But in MLB, when there's been no bubble, you know, the Cardinals and the Marlins, when I believe the Mets were affected. So my question to you is, and I'm going to this to me is what I really care about, knowing that I don't have confidence it's going to last because we're a society ruled by fear. And then once one or two teachers or one or two students, everybody's going to freak out. So this is this is what I want to know, Corinne. I want to know, are today's teachers truly trained and qualified to meet the evolving needs of students? And, and what I mean by that is clearly there's a whole different skill set of virtual engagement. I mean, that's a very different skill set. But for someone like you who has a degree in psychology and you know how critical that is to be an effective teacher from a psychological perspective and a virtual perspective, are teachers not in your – I want to know – I don't want to know in your school district. I want to know your perspective overall. Like do you think the majority of teachers are really equipped to handle this? I think that the majority of teachers are. I don't think the majority of teachers believe that they are, Mm, but I think that they are. I think that we have to tap into the supports that we have within the school district that we may not normally tap into as often. So, for example, the psychologists in our building, the social workers in our building, not only for the support of the child, because that's usually what we use those resources for, but for the support of the teacher and the families and really making people feel comfortable. I think that the relationship that you have with the school department comes first. And when you have that relationship as a teacher, as a parent, as a child, you feel heard, you feel supported, everything else really does fall into place. Um, School departments are working feverishly to prepare their teachers for distance learning. Um, you know, even we have teach, you know, teachers that are, are studying right now and student teachers. I mean, what a rough place to be as a graduate, you know, an impending graduate and having to do your student teaching like this. Um, and I think of that often. And colleges are preparing teachers to deal with all types of different aspects that may arise. And yes, I do think they're prepared. They are, they are colleges are doing that now or they've always done it? Because I don't feel like they've always done it. They haven't always done it. No, it's obviously more prevalent now. Uh, I'm sure, I mean, and I don't know this for a fact, but I'm sure curriculums are being established as we speak to prepare teachers for this type of experience that they're going to have. So I have to be honest with you, Corinne. Mm -hmm. I'm a little skeptical. I, I feel like when you say school districts are feverishly preparing teachers, you know, I when we come back from the break, I want to talk more about that because to me... Uh, feverishly preparing is a very vague phrase. And I, when we come back from the break, Corinne and I are going to respectfully discuss 
the prep, the feverish preparation by school districts. Bring it on, Mark All Altman. All right. All right. We love it. Okay. So for I Communicate, my name is Mark Altman. We'll be back after the break. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Welcome back to iCommunicate. And if you'd like to call into the show, the number is 508-871-7000. That's 508-871-7000. So uh, here I am with Corinne Ferry, representing the North Smithfield, Rhode Island School District, uh, Teacher of the Year. I mean, Corinne, can we just talk about that teacher of the year? How cool was that to get that? Early on in my career, too, which was pretty amazing. Right, but like, how did that, I'm not, like, I know it's kind of an obvious question, but how did that accolade, like, that must have been amazing. Yeah, it was huge. It was huge. I, I, it was unexpected for me. Um, I just felt like I was doing what I needed to be doing as a teacher and to, to be recognized and to really be called out for all of that hard work was, exciting for me. Okay, so here's what's going on to the audience. I'm just trying to butter Corinne up before I disagree with her. So, okay, so Corinne, we talked about feverishly preparing. Now, I want to preface my comments by saying I am no expert. I am not in touch with national school districts Mm -hmm. all over the country. This is instinctive. Now, I do do professional development for schools. I do have several clients that are schools, so I am in touch with schools. But I'm really skeptical about the phrase feverishly preparing, and let me be specific in what I mean. To me, a lot of teachers struggle to engage in person, never mind in virtual. And so if a superintendent came to me and said, well, Mark, what do you want us to do to feverishly prepare everybody? What's going to satisfy you personally? What I would say is I want you to have professional development um, resources, uh, voluntary ones offered by the school, whatever, that teach them, teach teachers how to be more effective virtual engagers. And I know that's not really a phrase, but but so my point is, Corinne, that from a psychological preparation mm-hmm. with everybody's fear of change in the unknown and from a virtual preparation, yeah, I, I don't think that's happening all that well on a national level. So my counter to you would be, you know, you have been present in some school districts. So you're using your own experiences to make that judgment. That's true. Um, and and that's where my experiences come from as well. And, and I'm thankful enough to be in a rock star district, absolutely 100%, where um, professional development is offered consistently. It is um, teachers have a lot of input in the type of professional development that we have. Um, and it's it's a huge part of what we do, and it's welcomed by the teachers. And it's very effectively done. It's really grown into an amazing system for us. Okay, so Corinne, so yes. perfect. Great mm-hmm. point. So this whole three-part series is around learning, retention, and motivation. So the question is, um, when you graduate college and you get your degree in teaching, you're allegedly ready to become a teacher. You get your first job. Yes. And then once you start teaching, you're evaluated just 
quickly, succinctly, you're evaluated as a teacher typically how to make sure you're qualified and you're doing everything you're supposed to do. Correct. You're also assigned a mentor teacher who is going to be there for you to support you. In your district. In my district, okay. but I, I, think that's pretty... I think that that's a normal okay. standard. Yes, first-year okay. teacher has that mentor. Okay. Um, a program where you're teamed up with somebody who's experienced and they are there for you um, throughout the process to help you. So since when, when many teachers that aren't new and have been in school didn't have to learn virtual engagement in college, here's what I'm asking you. What would make you comfortable to know that a teacher is ready to be an effective what certification, what testing, what course structure? Because that's kind of where I'm leading here. The feverish preparation is, okay, even if the resources are provided, what you, and this is your own opinion. I'm just saying to you, like, if you got to make the rules and say, well, this is what I would like to see them do to show that they're ready to do this effectively, what would you say? So really, I think teachers would need to prove, and, I, and I've been on interview committees. I've um, you know, definitely asked some, some heavy questions about technology to teachers, and they would need to be able to prove that they could. And obviously, they don't have the experience with distance learning, okay? But they would need to be able to prove that they can incorporate technology effectively within their classrooms. And if you can do that, you know, most and I don't know this for a fact, but students, a lot of districts are one-to-one, students with Chromebooks. Um, teachers have smart boards. Now, this isn't everywhere, and I understand that, but you would be able to, especially these, these teachers coming right out of college, like technology is a huge piece. So if you can effectively manage that within your classroom and engage students with technology, that they're using it effectively and appropriately, the transition to home is not as hard. Well, and you could possibly argue that students who are obviously love and use technology so much now, it might open up channels of communication with teachers that in an in-person environment, they may not be comfortable utilizing. Is that a fair statement? That's fair. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I want to switch gears for a second, Corinne, because in our last segment, you made a really interesting point about mental health resources in school. And, you know, my feeling is that... uh, for students, and I know you're an elementary school teacher, but whether it's elementary, middle, high school, uh, the likelihood a student could self-diagnose that they have a mental health challenge, to me, beyond saying I feel stressed, right, um, is slim. Mm-hmm. But let's go on the basis that they could self-diagnose. There's typically a stigma associated with a student needing some kind of mental health support. Agreed. I, I agree with that from, you know, your perspective, um, and I understand why you would say that. And I just want to give you some examples of what we do to— Well, no, wait a minute. No. I'm not going to let you, and I'll tell you why. Because this is what I'm trying to confirm from you. Mm-hmm. How many parents, if their child needed some kind of mental health support, would share that with other parents, unless they knew it was a safe, common problem? No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. That's what they I mean wouldn't. by stigma. Right. Yes. Okay? Yes. So that's what I mean. So I figured. Okay, so— mm-hmm. So my point to you is, if there is a stigma associated with going for help, if there is an insecurity around that, how is that different for teachers? Is it different for teachers? And do you, in your experience, are you finding, are you, are you of the like, are you of the thought process of, Mark, no, teachers 
readily would go utilize that support? Or are you of the like that says, no, there are some stigmas and challenges that they're not utilizing those resources? Where do you sit on that? So I feel like the way we are headed in in our district, again, um, and I think people listening can really, and if they're in a, a situation where they're in a classroom or if they're a parent, Um, This might be a good question to ask how readily available those resources are to students. And does your child know who the school psychologist, social worker, counselor, do they know those people? Um, Can they identify them? And And, and do they know why they would even utilize them? And what they do. Exactly. So our team... Um, they come into classrooms and, you know, before all of this happened, they were coming in on a weekly basis, all of them, to present to the children. And a lot of it had to do with recess and a lot of it was, you know, struggles that kids have um, interacting with their peers at recess. So, but they would introduce themselves. They talked about their role in the school and that they were always there to help and support. And the students could always see any of them for support. Um, So having their faces all over the school in every classroom has really started to lessen that stigma. That's awesome. It is awesome. It is awesome. Um, And I think that teachers are better recognizing um, within their classrooms who might need support and maybe not for a long period of time, but maybe just for a short period of time. Yeah, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really does sound like you're in a great school district. Oh, my gosh. So final question before we go into break. And then when we we come back from uh, our second segment, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk about parents and how parents can adjust and some of the transition issues around that and how communication between schools and parents and so on and so forth. So last question, Corinne, for everybody listening out there, tell us two or three things you've done personally to adapt to be an effective distance learning teacher. Sure. Um, So I think the most important thing is for your students to feel like they have such a great relationship with you and that you're real, um, especially through a screen. So what one of the things that I do and I know we're kind of running out of time, but one of the things that I do um, each day for distance learning is I have a morning message and the students are able to figure out what their agenda of the day is. I tell jokes. I might, you know, film that in different areas of my house where they really feel connected to me and are having a great time. OK, that's great. So, that's great. OK, thank you. All right. So when we come back, we're going to talk again about communication between schools and parents, the voice parents have for I communicate. In Corinne Ferry, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be back. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, 
Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to iCommunicate. And I have to share some really critical news with our listeners today. We know the power of temptation, right? Temptation is can be really tough to overcome. And I'm in the middle of a move, and I have avoided the temptation to throw mercury in the trash. And, and I got to tell you. <laughs> I do know that commercial. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, big commitment by me during this move to not throw any mercury in the trash. So I just I just wanted to tell everybody that that's big, big the people of the world appreciate your effort. Thank you, thank you very much. I very much care about the environment. Okay, so we're back. Uh, we're talking about uh, the adapt the you know, adapting back to going back to school for teachers, students, parents, and the whole nine yards. And I promised when we got into this segment we would talk about how parents are fitting into all this. But I do have a very critical question for Corinne, just to finish up what we were talking about before. Corinne, my experience back in the spring was a lot of the time that teachers were uh, distance learning with kids, they were spending asking about the kids' well-being. You know, how's everybody dealing with this and so on and so forth, which I I understood. It's fine. But we're not done, right? The pandemic's still going on. There's still still a lot of fears. So um, I've never been a big fan of the rigidity of curriculum in school districts to satisfy like state testing requirements and things like that. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't we loosen up standards and requirements, at least for this year in curriculum, to allocate for the time teachers will need to be available psychologically and mentally for students? Absolutely. And I, and I think that um, the standards that we go by, the Common Core State standards, have major content standards, and there's also supporting standards. And those supporting standards are the ones that we're lightening up on. So we are going to be focusing, and and this I can speak on behalf of all districts, I believe, that our focus is going to be solely those content, those major content standards. And yes, psychologically, we definitely need to to, um, stay in tune with our classes and our students and making sure everybody is is doing well, Um, and it's going to be challenging. However instruction is going to be beefed up considerably from our last experience. Well, that's great. That's great to hear. All right. So, Corinne, let's talk about parents. Sure. And uh, so this is my thing with parents, and this is where I want to start. You know, everybody wants a voice in decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So my question is, as different districts made the decisions to see what was appropriate, what kind of voice should parents have had in that decision? You know, you're never going to get consensus. It's impossible but A, should parents have had a voice? And B, how should their feedback have impacted administration's final call on it? And that's very important to administrators. And I think that I, I, from my, the district where I live and the district, district that I teach in, um, superintendents have sent out multiple surveys to find out information from families on how they feel, what is their comfort level, And like I said earlier, they've been very transparent. They've been trying to give families as much information as possible that they have. And and that's the tricky part. You know, we think that the superintendents have all the answers, but but they don't because they're not hearing information that they need right away and as soon as they would like. So they're just giving us the information right now that they have access to. Um, So, yes, uh, parent feedback is critical in the decision-making process. You know, you I, I detest politics, but mm-hmm. the one aspect of politics I like is when there's town halls. Yes. And, you know, the, the, the important people get in front of a large audience. Yeah. Now, obviously, with the pandemic, the in-person is challenging. Mm-hmm. My question is, do you think school districts in general do a good job 
reinforcing that a parent's voice matters. And what I mean by that is I'm not saying do they do a good job giving them an outlet like surveys or things like that. I'm saying do you think the typical parent feels like, you know what, I'm definitely going to fill out this survey. I'm definitely going to give feedback because I feel like my opinion really matters. Do you think parents actually feel that way? I sometimes think parents don't take advantage of all of the resources that school departments have to welcome their feedback. I mean, we have school improvement teams, and parents are invited to attend and to be a part of those, and they meet monthly. Every school district has that. And you might get two parents that attend those. But Um, that's my point. Do you think you only get two parents because parents say, why bother? It's not going to matter anyway. Or are they just Partly. too busy and they're not and making exactly. the time? Exactly. And, and I get that. I mean, I'm unable to be on my son's um, school improvement team because of my work schedule. Um, and that's something that I've always wanted to be a part of, but I can't. So I think that, yes, part of it is that. Part of it is scheduling. Um, but I, the administrators really, in my district make parents feel comfortable reaching out and sharing their concerns, whether it's just through email or a phone call, and they do validate them. You, you know you know what I think, Corinne, truthfully? What? I think that the two factors we just discussed mm-hmm. that impact parent engagement and participation, one is busy schedule, mm-hmm. and one is maybe not feeling like it matters. I'll tell you what, there's a third one that I don't think is discussed, and the third one is that I think parents only think it's worthwhile if they're agreed with. And so I think that if they don't, if they go, if they actually do take the time to participate in surveys and feedback and engagement, I think a lot of times if the final decision isn't consistent with what they gave feedback on, they'll say, why bother? Right. And and there's also the group that truly does trust the decision-making process that administrators and teachers are making. Mm-hmm. And I have lots of families that trust me completely with the decisions that I make with their children that are in front of me on a day-to-day basis. And you need that trust. So I think that you are forgetting the population of people that have that trust in the school department. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you know, I think One of the things I do a lot of self-reflection and mindfulness, and one of the things I think about a lot now is having what I would say simultaneous emotions. And I think as a parent, as a teacher, Mm -hmm. you can have a simultaneous set of emotions, which is you can be frustrated that things aren't moving more efficiently, more effectively, and you can also empathize with that everybody's going through a transition that's very difficult to maneuver. And right. I think you can feel both ways, right? And, and yeah, Absolutely. And these administrators are, you know, they're not sleeping. I mean, they are working their tails off. And we all have judgments. We all, you know, make these predictions about how we feel. And some of it comes from anger just in general of where we are in this world. But we do have to make sure that we put some trust into those teachers and Well, those and, and the irony, Corinne, just as a quick comment digression is the irony is for the amount of frustration we have towards public education, teachers, school districts, our society has basically made a unilateral decision that teachers are among the lowest paid professionals. So it's like, this is really important. We got to get this done right. And at the same time, you don't deserve to make that much money. Yes. So it's such a dichotomy of logic that makes no sense to me and never has. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I also try to balance my frustration at times with public education. And you know, it's funny, Corinne, like there's an expression people use a lot in society, you get what you pay for. And I always have found that to be a very lazy expression because sometimes you do get what you pay for and sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, we need to invest more in teachers and public education. And if we want this done right, 
Yes. We need to put the money and the resources behind it so it can be You better done believe right. it. Yeah. I agree. So let's talk about what parents should be doing to support teachers and to support their kids, really. And so when I think of, if I was to say to you, if you taught my son, mm-hmm. and if I was to say to you, Corinne, what should I be doing as a parent to support what you're doing in distance learning or in the classroom? Give me a list of three things that if you said, I wish all parents would consistently do these three things, what, what should they be doing? Okay, well, I feel as though some of this is going to come from the teacher, and then as a result of a teacher's decision, you're going to see what parents would should do. So teachers will reach out and communicate to families, and I think that it's important for those families as a parent that you follow up with that teacher. Um, so if they are posting a schedule, if they are posting assignments, if they're reaching out and they're sending out an agenda for the week of the different content um, that is going to be covered in class, it's nice for parents to respond to those emails to keep those lines of communication open. You need to have a relationship with your teacher. And great teachers foster that and they reach out. So I would tell families, I would tell parents, not all the time, and I know everybody's dealing with a lot right now, but reach out to your child's teacher. Just say, hey, I think what you're doing is great, or I have a question about something. Um, Anything at all. We are there to help, and I think we need to know that you're, you're reading those emails and you appreciate that, or maybe you have questions for the teacher. So, so that's the first thing. Okay. Yeah, okay? Yeah. Um, the second thing that I think would be really important for parents to do would to just have great conversations with their kids. Now, most of them are going to be working. Um, maybe grandma or auntie or somebody is watching the children if they're, you know, the elementary level, the younger ones. Um, those parents need to have those conversations, whether it's on a car ride or over dinner. What did you do today? What did you learn? And if you have, if you're lucky enough to have one of those great teachers, and there are so many of them, um, that let you know what content they're covering. So they send a personal email to families ahead of time. And you might have a a middle schooler that's like, "Mm, yeah, it was fine. I completed my work. If you know the content that they're being introduced to, you can ask specific questions and engage your child. And I think that that's the second thing that parents should really try to make time for. Um, And I felt with my son's class um, this past year that I was receiving emails on a consistent basis from his teachers, and I could ask him specific questions about what he was learning, and it led to some very meaningful conversations, and he knew that the work that he was doing not only was it important to his teachers, but it was important to me as well. So that's the second thing. Um, and you asked for three things, correct? Well, actually, I want to stop you right sure. there. I did, too, but the two you came up with were fantastic. Okay. So I just want to add something to what you said. Uh, when, when Corinne talked about having conversations with your kids, I think every parent has been in the spot where you're like, how was your day? Or what did you do today? And you say, how was your day? Good. What did you do today? I don't know. Whatever. And there's always some kind of lazy, kind of uninvested answer. And so there's a strategy I want to share with parents right now um, that I, I teach people of all levels to facilitate communication. And what the, let me just, before I share this strategy, let me just make a quick point. 
The easiest thing, if you remember one thing, the easiest thing to do is ask open-ended questions instead of closed-ended questions, right? Because closed-ended questions don't facilitate conversation. So here's the strategy. So let's say your child comes home from school and says, tell me about your day. That's what you say to your child. Tell me about, nice open-ended question. Tell me about your day today. And they give you some kind of generic, simple, I don't know, it was good, had fun at lunch, had gym, some really generic answer. So then this is what happens. After your kids, and you know your kids are going to give you that answer. They always give you that answer. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people shut down at that point. They get frustrated. They get annoyed. They might say to their kid, come on, can you just tell me like what happened in your day? Don't do that. Mm -hmm. This is what I want you to do. When you say, tell me about your day, and they give you some quick response, I want you to give them a second and say, no, that sounds really good. Um, Tell me about gym, though. Like, what are you doing in gym right now? Ask some follow-up questions about something that you think they would really want to talk about that they shared in the first answer. And if I can piggyback on that, actually say, show me. Um, Even better. Because that's that's pretty important. Yeah, I agree. I think that's great feedback. And then, and ultimately... When you're, having, when you're trying to facilitate conversation with a human being, keep in mind a couple of things. One, when your child finishes school, they've been talking and dealing with people all day, just like when you go to work and you're tired all day. So they're wanting and needing to want to talk to you about everything they've been doing. It's, it's not a huge priority for them. So remember that. Okay, and, and lastly, uh, Ted's telling me i got to go to break, so I'm going to rush, rush. So lastly, the third thing is, if they're really not in the space to talk, let them know you really would like to know. Tell them you'd like to talk about it in a couple of hours. Tell them you'd like to talk about it tomorrow. But don't make it be finite that if they're not ready to talk then, then you're frustrated and can't talk about it. Before we go, I just want um, us to bring up next, when we come back that I just have a tip for parents. Awesome. And I want to make sure I start off We with definitely that, want that. Oh, All right. So good. stay tuned. This is I Communicate for Corinne Ferry. I'm Mark Altman. We'll be back after the break. I'll write that down. Now, I communicate continues on full service radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host. Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. I'm here with Corinne Ferry, former Teacher of the Year and uh, Master's Degree in Elementary Education, and really the one of the go-to people in her district to train and provide professional development and mentorship to teachers. So, Corinne, really uh, thrilled to have you here today. Thank you. Um, Corinne had a tip, and I promised I would remind her before the break. So, Corinne, what was the parenting tip you were going to discuss? To come up with ways to... Um, communicate with your child better about what they're learning, always feel free to reach out to the teacher. I think sometimes parents are hesitant to do that. Um, Please make sure that you do that because sometimes, you know, we can get that vibe, but lots of times we don't. So it's really important that you follow up with your teacher if you have any questions um, or if you need any ideas on how you can communicate better with your child about their learning. You are entitled to know exactly what your child is learning about. And, you know, one of the things that I do in the classroom um, on a Monday is send out um, 
a memo to families and I outline everything that will be covered during the week. And I'm pretty specific about what standards I cover and what um, the children will be learning in the classroom. And the feedback that I've received from families has been amazing. And they love that. Now, sometimes in a perfect world, not everything gets covered, but most of it does. And it really opens up the lines of communication at home where parents can ask specific questions. It's even gotten to the point where the kids will say, how'd you know that to their parents when they bring something up? And um, it's, it's truly meaningful. So if you don't get that information from your child's teacher, please reach out and ask those questions. Well, Corinne, I can tell you firsthand what gets in the way of that. Because it's, it's really good advice. You know what the problem is? It's much easier to complain and vent about what's going on than to actually reach out and get answers and solve the problem. And I think a lot of people are frustrated with public education and teachers and administrators. And instead of actually taking the time to get the answers and seek clarity, it's easier to complain. Mm-hmm. And, and I want to piggyback on Corinne's tip. And I want parents to think very hard about what I'm about to say. You, the, the only way kids learn is by you modeling, okay? If your kids had a problem with a teacher, had questions about an assignment or a project, didn't understand something, what advice would you give them? You should go talk to the teacher. Yep. So if you as a parent have those same opportunities and you're not modeling that for the kids, then the kids aren't going to do it either. So the key here is not just to look at it as seeking clarity. You can use it as a learning opportunity mm-hmm. to say, look, I have some questions confusing. And in the same way I tell you to reach out to the teacher, I'm going to reach out to the teacher. So, and, and by the way, in case any parents, I just want to put an asterisk here. I am not saying you should problem solve for your kids. I am saying you should seek answers to your own concerns and problems to model it for your kids. Yes, I agree. So, okay. So, Corinne, I want to switch gears for a second. And... Um, One of my pet peeves in public education for the last several years is I feel like we're starting to wussify kids in education. I like that word. Is that that in the dictionary? Total made up. It's in the Altman dictionary. It could be a Scrabble word, Corinne. I don't know. But I'm just saying. Okay. Anyway, so um, the thing I want to bring up about wussifying kids is I feel like there's such a growing faction of parents that feel like their kids have too much on their plate and there's too much curriculum and too much work and oh my god my kids overwhelmed and my kids stressed and so I want to know from you as a teacher who plays both roles as a teacher and a parent Mm -hmm. what is that right balance and before you answer I just want to make one other comment because one of the comments I make to parents who think their kids are overloaded with work is before you ask for them to have less work understand how they're going to spend their time alternatively because if how they're going to spend their time alternatively is not constructive, mm-hmm. then then give them the work. So anyway, that's my that's my question. Sure. So um, you know, for me to be able to relate in in both roles, and I mean, my son is eleven years old, and I was teaching nine years prior to that, and I did not have the experience of being a parent. And that was something that I always tried to do. I always tried to put myself in the role of the parent, which is impossible when you're not one. But I tried to really see things from their perspective. And creating a balance that um, is one where the child can be successful in the classroom and also successful with extracurricular activities is a challenge for a lot of people. And I think that if the child is struggling academically or is feeling overwhelmed, the first thing a parent should do is ask for a meeting with the child's teacher if it hasn't already come from the teacher 
and not just a teacher-parent meeting, but a teacher-parent-child meeting. Let's talk about this because it's you'd be kind of um, interested to see what a child will say in the presence of their teacher and their parents. And so all three people. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yes, okay. yes. I think that's important, and I don't think we do that enough. I think the child needs to be present, needs to be there. I agree. Because sometimes what a child is expressing and what they're feeling, there can be simple fixes to it. And um, so that's something that... I think is important for parents to do. And if a, t- if a child's teacher isn't um, saying that the child should be present, it's something that a parent should ask. So definitely ask if you're feeling overwhelmed with the academics that you sit down with your child's teacher with your child present. All right, Corinne, so yes. the Golden Globe music starting to play. So he- here's the deal. First of all, you have added so much value to the show today. Your insight and, and perspectives were invaluable. So we're going to end with a hard-hitting bang here. So my final question is, Kids, most kids don't like school, whether it's in person, not kid. They, they like the socialization. Mm-hmm. They like going to hang out with their friends. Mm-hmm. They like recess and lunch. Yeah. But most kids generally don't consistently look forward to going to school. If it's not fun, why do it? Right. What, it, you know, and I, I'm only giving you 30 seconds to a minute to right. answer this, but what change? What do we need to do as parents and teachers yeah. to change that trajectory? I love it. Well, your teachers need to know, what's Joey doing after school? Is he a phenomenal baseball player? Um, is he going home and taking care of a younger sibling? Teachers need to have conversations with their students every day and build relationships that don't ha- deal with academics, but what that deal with what's happening in their outside worlds. But do teachers have time? They do, because when they walk in the door, you can ask that question in 30 seconds. And over time, you build a relationship and a trust with the child, and you're able to ask questions to engage them in that conversation. You absolutely do. And one of the things I pride myself on, and one of the reasons why I was selected as, as Teacher of the Year was for that reason. You have great relationships with students. It's not hard. It is not hard to do it all, and it just happens naturally if you are effective at it. And when you have that connection with the child, everything else falls into place. Fantastic. So, Corinne, thank you again. Great feedback. And uh, we're going to do part three next week of Don't Test Me, where we're going to get back into the corporate arena and some of the challenges related to continuous learning and goals and things like that. For Corinne Ferry, thank you so much. I'm Mark Altman. Thank you for listening to I Communicate. For more information about Mindset Go, info at mindsetgo.com, 978-206-1535. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.